Father, thanks for an opportunity to be still this morning, quiet our hearts and quiet our minds so that we could focus on you, your word, your spirit, and what you have for us this morning. Would you meet us this morning as only you can do? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be transformed into the likeness of your son? Go before us in this conversation as we look at your word and we look at things that hinder our growth and maturity in you. We need you. So we ask that you would meet us during our time together. We love you and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Good morning, you guys. Good to see you. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in week three of a five-week series called Mature in Christ. Normally, we just walk through books of the Bible. We'll jump into the book of Esther in February. But each congregation of the Redemption families are speaking directly to their context. And so here at Peoria, we've been praying and having the conversation and going, man, if our goal, if our vision really is to follow Jesus, to become like Jesus, to do what Jesus does, and, and that, as, as Ray read that verse in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, when Paul is saying, as he proclaims Christ, he warns and teaches with all wisdom to do what? to present everybody mature in Christ. If that's his whole goal, to present people mature in Christ, what are the things that block us in that maturity? What are the things that hinder us in our growth in following Jesus? And as we prayed as a staff and began to have conversations, two things came to the surface because it could be lots of things that we could cover, but two things we want to really hit in these five weeks are one, pride, and two, shame. And so we kicked off the series. If you haven't heard it, I would just encourage you to go back. It's going to set context for what we're talking about this week and the next two weeks, is that pride is the silent spiritual killer. It will hinder our growth with Jesus every single time. And then what we're going to talk about today in the next two weeks is shame. How does shame enter into that conversation of hindering our growth in our relationship with Jesus? About nine years ago, I was a part of a leadership group for two years in my old job and in another form of ministry, and, and part of what we had to do was fill out an assignment about our story, and then we got coaching and feedback on part of our story. And so I fill out part of my story and just kind of sharing, and, and the guy that was coaching me at the time, uh, in the margins of my story, he just said, hey, it looks, it looks like there's some shame here in your story. You might want to pay attention to that. And so I listened to the comment, and I said, I, I wrote back, and I said, actually, I, I think you're right. I don't know much about shame. I haven't done a ton of work on it. Would you recommend something to read or watch or study? Because I really don't know too much about shame, but I'm sensing you're right. And, it, and I'm sensing it's something I need to really begin to dive into and understand. And so he recommended a book uh, by an author named Ed Welch called Shame Interrupted. And in that book, Ed just unfolds uh, where shame shows up in the narrative of the Bible, how it shows up, what we need to do about it. Man, I read that book, and it wrecked me in the best way. And so since then, I've been kind of on this journey of like, where does shame show up? I'm in, I'm in Enneagram One, and so I'm always blaming myself. And, and, and shame is a thread in my story as I look at it, and it actually hinders my relationship with God and my relationship with other people. And so what we're going to do this morning, um, specifically this first week, we're going to talk about if, if pride is about uh, defending yourself, um, shame is about hiding, not being known. And so what we're going to talk about this morning is where do we hide from God 
Next week, we'll talk about where do we hide from one another in our relationships? And then the last week, we'll talk about how do we come out of this hiding for healing? What does that actually look like? And we're obviously not going to cover everything about shame or pride in these five weeks, but our hope is to begin the conversation so that we continue to have conversations at dinner tables and in prayer and in conversations through this whole year as a community here at Redemption Peoria. So that's the hope. That's the goal. So as we'll walk through this, we'll kind of define what shame is. How how are we talking about that when we use that word? And then we'll say, where does shame first show up in the biblical narrative, in the story? And then what do we do with it? What does that look like? So that's where we're going to go for this morning. Some of the people that I'll bring into our conversations that you're going to hear me quote a lot this week and the next two weeks are Ed Welch, who I just mentioned. Um, Kurt Thompson has a book called The Soul of Shame. I'll, I'll quote him a lot. Uh, and then I sat down with Elizabeth Freer, who's our women's ministry director. She's a, a licensed therapist. And we just talked about, man, where does shame show up in our lives in the biblical narrative? And she recommended a book by a guy named David uh, Tracy called Mending the Soul that's been really helpful. So those are kind of the sources I'll be pulling in um, to help highlight some of where we're going to anchor ourselves in the, the text. Uh, and, and this is what Ed Welch says in this idea of shame interrupted. He says this. He says, we all have voices that tell us we are never enough. If we measure up in school, we don't in sports or attractiveness or anything else. We always have voices around us and in us that assure us that we are indeed substandard or average which just feels bad. We hide because we are not enough. Hiding, of course, comes with its own problems. Hiding reduces our close relationships to mere acquaintances. We put on a face so we're never fully known. The result, we become more and more isolated. Relationships can't thrive with such privacy. As if it weren't bad enough, our human relationships reveal details of our relationships with God. If we hide before other people, you will hide before God. If you are not open with God, you are not open with other people. The two go hand in hand. So again, if pride is about defending, shame is about hiding. Where are you hiding in your relationship with God? What does that look like for you in your life? Those that are are calling yourself Christian, that are trying to follow Jesus. Our oldest son is now 20. When he was one, we lived in Ohio and worked there in ministry, and we rented this little tiny house, and his bedroom was right above the living room. And as we would do our evening routine, we would take a bath, and we would uh, read him a book, and we would tuck him in, and we'd say, okay, now, Carson, it's time to stay in bed. And our son is a night owl, always has been, still to this day, and he's a very curious person. And so we would walk downstairs after that whole bid and say, okay, you need to stay in bed. It's time to stay in bed. We'd walk downstairs, and then within about five minutes, you'd hear, because it's right above us. And he'd be getting out of his crib, and he'd be wandering around. And so uh, we would go up, and, and the lights were off, and we'd open the door and say, Carson, it's time, to, it's time to go to bed. You need to get back in bed. You need to obey mom and dad. Like, this is, this is for your good. And we'd go downstairs, and then five minutes later. And so now it's like, okay, next time we go up, okay, now there's going to be a consequence if you disobey. We're trying to train him, we're trying to teach him, and we're just tired. We're ready for the night to be done. 
So again, we'd hear him get out of bed, and so we'd go up. And then eventually after that, kind of like there's going to be a consequence time, time you get out of bed, you're disobeying. Um, we would walk upstairs, and I would open the door if I heard it. And, and it's dark in there, and so he would, he would hide in one of two ways. When he hear the door open and he knows he's caught, one, he would just run. If he was near something, he would hide behind something, hit a little basketball, he would hide. Or one time I, I walked in, and he legit dove on the ground and rolled under the crib <laughs> like a Navy SEAL. And, and in the moment, as a parent, I'm like, I know I'm supposed to, dis I know I'm supposed to like be disciplined, but I'm, I'm just impressed. I, I'm, not even, like, I'm not even mad at you. That, that's, like, that's amazing. I feel proud as a dad right now, you know? So, so one way he would hide, he would just run and like cover himself. But if he wasn't close to something and he would start to do this, I, I would open the door. It's dark and he would just freeze and he would just look down. And in his mind, I think he's going like, if I don't look up, he can't see me. <laughs> kind of like a dinosaur in Jurassic, just, I just, I'll just stay here. And if I don't move, he won't know I'm out of bed. And sometimes we do that in our relationship with God. Don't we? When we're out of bounds, when we know we feel convicted by the Spirit, we go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. We either, some of us just run from God. We don't want anything to do with them. We don't, but, but some of us and us that are here in this room, you're here for some reason, but some of us, we get in our sin and we just go like, oh, okay, if I just pretend it didn't happen, then, then maybe I'll just keep going in my relationship with God. And we don't deal with this because we have this sense of shame. We don't want to look up. And we need to understand how that hinders our growth and maturity with God. Again, let's look at some definitions from some of these authors of how they talk about shame, just to give us familiar language with this. Ed Welch says this. He says, shame is the deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did, something done to you, or something associated with you. You feel exposed and humiliated. Kurt Thompson talking about the way shame feels. He says, uh, when, when, when shame feels this way, you feel like I am not enough. There's something wrong with me. I'm bad or I don't matter. And then David Tracy says this, shame is the most powerful human emotion. It often overwhelms, directs, and transforms all other emotions, thoughts, experiences. It hijacks all other internal and external voices. If this current of shame runs in us from an early age, just like we'll see in the Bible, it shows up very early, and in our lives it shows up very early. If we don't uh, open up the hood and start to understand how does this affect me, it will hijack how you think about God and how you think about other people. At a baseline, um, guilt, uh, guilt and shame are kind of like cousins. They're a little bit different. And again, we'll continue to define terms. But guilt is, I did something wrong. I feel guilty. I did something wrong. Shame at a baseline level is, I am wrong. Not that I just did something, but, but something is inherently wrong with me. And what shame does, it's the fear of being truly known. And so what we do when we start to feel shame is, is we strive for excellence. We compare ourselves to each other. We defend our decisions. We blame others for our failures because the idea of not being enough, if we're truly known, it's debilitating to us. 
and we don't know how to handle it. So we put on this invisible mask of protection of either um, pride of defending or uh, shame and hiding, and we're not truly fully known. When you talk about shame, especially, shame's kind of a hot topic in our culture, even in the last couple of years. Um, the question I, that sometimes gets brought is, is, is all shame bad? Um, Paul helps us in some of this conversation in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, when he says this. He says, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So there is a good element of shame, understanding, man, I'm not right, and that should move us to the cross. That should move us to the place of go, I need help. And what Paul is saying is when that happens, that repentance, that turning leads to salvation without regret. But in a worldly version of just shame, I just need to do better. I just need to do better. It actually leads to death. How do we think about shame when it comes to the Bible? Again, David Tracy's helpful for us in this language. This is what he says. He says, the basic biblical concept of shame is emotional humiliation due to sin, which results in human or divine disgrace and rejection. Shame in Scripture carries similar connotations to this modern usage, a painful emotional sense of guilt or unworthiness and disgrace due to one's failure to live up to a standard. Furthermore, it, as does the psychological literature, the Bible speaks of the debilitating effects of shame. It breaks the heart and makes one emotionally sick. But unlike the secular psychological descriptions of shame that define it purely in terms of subjective human experience, biblical shame is ultimately defined by the character of God. Thus, the key to overcoming shame is more than simply learning to love and accept oneself. It is to discern God's perspective on one's shame and guilt and to let his perspective drive and reshape one's thoughts, actions, and ultimately one's feelings. So again, when the world talks about shame or this idea of toxic shame, it's, it's man, I am not enough and I never will be enough. But when the Bible talks about shame, because that's actually a pretty good description if you haven't come to Jesus biblically, is that there is something internally wrong with you, that you are separated from a holy God, that there's something that's not right. The Bible says you're dead, you're an alien of God, you're an enemy of God before Christ. But the difference is you're still loved. You still matter. You're created in God's image. That's not how the world talks about shame. But the Bible says, no, actually God is pursuing you and there is a way out through the cross. There's hope when we talk about shame when it comes to the Bible. So let's see where it first shows up. If you have a Bible, open it up to the very beginning of Genesis. We're gonna sit in Genesis chapter three, verses one through 13 this morning. And before we get to verse 1 of chapter 3, the last verse of the chapter previous, chapter 2, verse 25, is helpful for us. It's, it's, it's setting, the author is setting up what's going to come in chapter 3. In chapter 2, verse 25, the last verse says this, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. Why does the author use that word, that language, at the end of verse 
uh, 25 in chapter 2. He could have said the, wife and his, uh, the, the man and his wife were naked and they were fully loved. He could have used all types of language, but he's setting up where shame is beginning to enter into the narrative in chapter 3. And how really the enemy uses the bait of shame to begin to cause the man and the woman to fall into sin. So this is maybe a familiar story to many of us, a passage to us, but I want us to slow down and I want us to look at it through the lenses of shame as we've just defined it. I think that'll be helpful for us. So verse one of chapter three says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall, shall not eat the fruit of this tree that in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Again, Kurt Thompson, in his book, The Soul of Shame, gives insight to this passage, specifically um, how it comes to the enemy's use of shame as his main, one of his main weapons against God's creation. Verse 1, the serpent questions Eve's, uh, uh, to sort out the answers by herself. Do you catch that? Do you get that? He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Nowhere does the serpent suggest they go to God to check the facts. Thompson says it this way. He says, we also see that the serpent has no trouble talking about God rather than inviting the woman to have a conversation with God. This is one of shame's most important means of creating isolation that supports its effective gravitas. At this point, the woman can begin to consider God in her own mind by herself. She is given the opportunity to decide independently who God is and what he thinks and feels in response to her. Isn't that interesting? What shame does is it isolates us from talking to God, and it isolates us from talking to each other. Because when you sin, you don't want to talk to God. You want to just go like this. 
Because if you're like me and you go out of bounds of what God wants you to do, at least the voice in my head or this picture in my head as I'm projecting it is God going, going like, see, again, you did it again. Like, what is wrong with you? And he's just kind of shaking his head and just got, like, that's the voice that is not of the Father, but is of the enemy. And that's what I hear when I mess up. And so it isolates me. I don't want to hear that voice. And so I just distant myself from God. And that's a dangerous thing about shame and sin. Because in the text, God desires relationship with them, doesn't he? Look at verse 8. What does he do? He, he goes and he walks in the garden with Adam and Eve daily. Now, God is all-knowing. He knows they've already sinned. He knows they already messed up. He still goes to, to spend time with them. He desires relationship with them. And think, Eve could have, in that moment when the serpent says, is this really true? And, and, and he starts to trick her into believing that she can redefine God on her own terms. She could have been like, and her husband could have been like, hold on, let, we're going we're gonna to see God's later today. Why don't we ask him? But that doesn't happen. She doesn't do that. And the pace of sin and shame is not patience but hurry. Every single time, even think about it. When we play hide and seek, you play hide and seek as a kid. What do you do? Somebody starts counting and you run. You're trying quickly to hide because you don't want to be found. And often in our lives, because of this pace that's like, oh, do it now, do it now, do it now. We don't slow down. Eve could have said, hey, let me check with God what you're saying. I'm going to see him later today. But she doesn't do that. She gets caught into this spiral of shame and considering that God doesn't really love her. When Eve begins to tell the new version of truth about the tree in the garden, look back at verse 2. This is what she does. What's what, what was once a warning that God gives her, a warning that the tree would lead to death, now becomes a potential source of life in verse 6. This is a warning. God says, don't do this. This is not for your good. And instead of heeding that warning, the enemy gets her to believe that actually, this is actually going to bring me life. Man, don't we do this all the time in our relationships with God? This is what happens when we retell the truth on our own terms, in isolation by ourselves. We do this with our sexuality. What is a warning? God says, it's one man, it's one woman in a covenanted relationship, a marriage. That's going to be the best place to live out this gift of sexuality with you. But what we do is we go, actually, what was a warning? Now we redefine on our own terms and we go, actually, this is going to give me life. And if it feels good to me, I'm going to do it. We redefine the terms on our own apart from God. We do this with security. God says, be careful, don't build bigger barns, don't have more stuff, and it's a warning for our good as humans, but we redefine the terms on our own efforts with ourselves in isolation, and we go, actually, if I have more zeros in my bank account, I'll be more secure. We're doing this all the time. And this is what happens when we chase idols that we think will bring us life and connection that ultimately bring us death and destruction. In verse 4, what you see is the enemy's offer. And in stating that the woman will not die, he says, you're not going to die if you, if you eat that fruit. The serpent offers her a new rendition of the truth. That's what's happening. And again, Thompson says this. He says, God does not want you 
This is his idea of what the serpent is kind of saying um, in in the subtext of, of, of the offer. He says, God does not want you to have what he has. He doesn't want you to be close and connected to him as you might think he does. And by further implication, therefore, you're not as important as you think. You, as it turns out, are less than you think. You are not enough. That's the bait on the hook that the enemy is giving to Eve in this moment, that God doesn't really care about you. You don't really matter to him in our performance-based culture. Think about it. Since we're young, the first kind of things we do athletically is we kind of walk across to a mom or a dad or somebody, and we take our first wobbly steps, and what does that other person on the other end do? They go, oh, good job. So we live in this kind of performance-driven culture that if we perform, if we do the things, man, we get the hand claps and we get the love. And so it's baked into our culture to go, okay, to get love, I have to perform, right? If you think about your job and you get an in-review and it's like, well, I messed up, I'm imperfect, I keep failing, what's going to happen? You're going to get fired. If there's only 12 spots on a basketball team and you're trying out and you know you're like number 15, you're going to get cut from the team. So we begin to apply that mentality, a performance mentality with God, and the enemy just turns that shame dial up. And so it goes, we just go, I, just, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. Because we think our performance is what makes God clap his hands at us. Guys, If we had to perform for God to love us, he would never love us. It's not a comparison game like, oh, I'm more holy than you are, and so he he likes me better than he likes you, and it's like grading on a curve, and I make the cut, and you don't. Like, that's not how the gospel works. But shame wants to give us this message that we're not important, we're not good enough. How could God love you? How could he love you after what you did? There's no way. And that's a voice from the enemy. And in the biblical story, shame is wielded with the intent or the purpose of ruining the world. It's one of the enemy's main tactics, pride being the other, that he uses to separate us from God and to separate us from each other. Shame causes us to run and hide and isolate because God's holy and we're not. I mean, we saw this as we, we were looking at Revelation in the fall. We saw the first judgment in Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 and 17 say this. It says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, all of us, hid themselves in caves among the rocks and the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of wrath has come. Who can stand? If you are apart from Christ, if you are not in the family of God, you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, this will be your reaction at the end of the day because you will face a holy God and you will go, man, it's better for me to be crushed under these rocks than to deal with the wrath of God. We all hide because God is holy. Years ago, our middle son, who's now 18, he was about four years old. We were visiting my dad in Southern California. My dad had a putting green in the backyard. And my son Logan is out there with my stepmom. And, and um, if you know Logan, he just, he loves life. He just, the dials turned up all the time, all the way. It's great. I love it. 
And so, of course, he goes out there with a putter, and he's with my stepmom, and the first ball he gets, he doesn't putt. He just takes a full swing as hard as he can, and he connects with the ball. And it just goes flying into the window, my dad's window. And we were inside. It sounded like a gunshot. It was so loud. And as soon as he did it, he connected. He's with my stepmom, and he drops the club. and goes, quick, run, hide. <laughs> That's his, like, natural reaction because he goes, oh, this is, this is not going to be good. It's not going to be good. Grandpa's going to come out, and I'm going to get in trouble. I'm, quick, run, hide. That's just his natural reaction. That's all of us that deal with a holy God, and we know we're out of bounds. We know we are imperfect. We know we hurt each other. We hurt people. We hurt God, and so we want to run and hide. But what is God's posture? Even in Revelation, we have to realize, like, we think God has this short fuse that he's mad at us all the time, and we read verses like that in Revelation. We go, oh, no, he's coming for me. He's going to hurt me. But do you know the description of God in Exodus? He's patient. He's slow to anger. The context of Revelation 6, as we talked about, it's these, it's these people that have been ignoring God for years and doing terrible, terrible things, and they don't want anything to do with God, and now it's time for judgment. How do we see God approaching Adam and Eve in this story? Does he storm out and go, oh. we kind of read it sometimes like, what did you do? Why are you hiding? Look, look at the text. Look at what God says. He already knows they've messed up. He already knows there's going to be consequences. He moves towards them with a question. And verse 9, he just says, where are you? Where are you? Like God doesn't ask that question for his benefit. He's not, it's not like hide and seek and he's going, oh, I can't find you. Where? Like he knows where they are. He's asking for their benefit to go, where are you? Like I don't want you to hide, even in your mess, even in your sin, even in your shame. The father says, where, where are you? And as humans... You know, sociologists say, like, we, we can bring our guilt, if guilt is something we've done wrong, we can bring our guilt to one another. We can say, man, I've messed up. I'm so sorry. I've done it. But, but what they say is shame we usually don't bring to one another. We have to be found. Somebody has to come after us because it's so debilitating. It feels like we just can't look up. And isn't this what the gospel does? The Father comes to Adam and Eve. He says, where are you? And Jesus, in our shame, in our guilt, he comes to us. This is what the gospel is, that he comes down to us. We don't go up to him. He comes down to us and makes himself known in our presence and says, it's okay. I love you. I love you. I've got a solution for your shame. This is what happens as Jesus moves towards the broken. He's here for the sick. We all are. He's here to make us well, to bring us out of the hiding into healing. He takes our shame onto himself in the full wrath of God's judgment poured out onto him on the cross. I love Isaiah 54.4 talking about the future Messiah to come. It says, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. You will not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will not, for you will forget the shame of your youth. 
And when we surrender our lives to Jesus, those that call uh, themselves Christians, the Bible says we're a new creation. We have the righteousness of Christ. We've made clean, spotless. God separates your sin as far as the east is from the west. But then when the Father looks at you, he looks at you through the blood of Christ. He doesn't look at you at your decision and what you just did and how you just failed. No, he looks at his perfect son and he goes, I love you. And if you've exchanged your life for his, we need to understand shame's version of us as Christians because some of us have been rescued out of the waters of shame. We've been drowning in it, but we still think we're swimming in those waters. We don't fully understand the gospel. We don't fully understand that we've been made clean. We go, well, yeah, God's forgiven me for my sin, and I'll be in heaven, but oh, this thing again, man, I just, I, I blew it again, and I don't, like... And you're not applying the gospel to your everyday situations, which is true, that the blood of Christ cleanses your shame, that you are enough, not because of you, because that's pride, but because of the cross, that you're made clean, that you're made right, that you don't have to stand in the corner and look down at your shoes. You can look up because the Father is saying, I love you. Love you. And man, we just don't get that. Because we've heard this message of performance and shame our whole life. We have to ask God to unwind it. Go, God, give me a new way to understand myself and understand you. When you think about your sin and you think about if you've blown it, if you're a Christian, what, like, what do you think God thinks of you or views you? Right again, we think, oh, man, he's disappointed in us. We blew it again. And God just says, my son, daughter, come back. I love you. There's nothing you could do to make me not love you. Nothing you could do to lose that love. And what we really do when we, when we short-circuit the gospel in that type of thinking is what we do in our pride. We go like, oh, I can't come back to Jesus because you think it had something to do with you. Instead of it doing to do with the cross, you think that what Jesus' sacrifice for you was not enough. That's what you're saying in your shame. It wasn't enough. That's the other side of the shame coin is pride. And Jesus goes, no. What I've done, what I did on the cross, the beating I took was enough. My blood covers your sin and covers your shame. So instead of us looking down, Christian, and just kind of, we just need to look up. And this is what Thompson says to the Christian. He says, to fix your eyes on Jesus means watching him and doing what he did. It is intentionally to seek out our shame, expose it, and reframe it in light of our Father, telling us that we are his daughters and sons in whom he is well pleased. For this to happen, we must practice embodied acts of imagination that enable our sensations, images, feelings, thoughts, and physical actions to reflect our sense of God's delight with us. Do you know if you've given your life to Jesus, he delights in you? Even in your messed up stuff. And he wants to say, come back. The Spirit convicts you because he goes, this isn't the best way for you. Come back to me. But some of us in our shame, we just sit down. We go, no, he'll never take me back. And we short-circuit the gospel. And we run and we hide. Instead of running and hiding, we need to look up. We need to fix our eyes on him. And we need to go, okay, he does love me. Because it's not based on me, it's based on him. 
And that's just a hard thing to understand. And if you haven't made the decision for Christ, you're exploring Christianity and you're, you're exploring Jesus, you will never get fully satisfied of your shame. You will never rid it fully until you come to Jesus. There's nothing you can do to climb this ladder of excellence. It only has to do with falling back and trusting in the grace of Christ. That's where you will find true freedom. So if you're not a Christian, I would just, I would beg you to consider giving your life to Jesus so that you can be made new and you can be made well. And if you are a Christian and you're dealing with this idea of shame, bring it into the light. Let's have conversations about this. This is where we are made well. All of us kind of do this self-condemnation stuff all the time. And we need to have a different imagination. And this is why we come to the table every single week. That's why we take communion every single week to engage our imagination to go, listen, out there the world will tell me I'm not enough unless I perform. But in here, in God's family, I realize that Jesus has done what I need to do. His work on the cross is adequate for the Father to go, I still love you. I still love you. Keep coming towards me, even in your brokenness. And so we walk down this aisle and we take a piece of bread, which represents his body. We dip it in the juice. And we go, God, is, I'm enough, not because of me, but because of you that I'm delighted in. That doesn't make sense when you mess up and you feel like I'm not delighted in it. And the father says, you are. My son proves it. And we remind ourselves of that sacrifice when we come down and we take communion every single week. So this is why we come down to the table every week. This is why we sing the truth of the gospel every week. This is why we go into homes and we pray with each other and we share meals with each other. This is why we read his word daily to to understand that, that what God says is that he loves us, he delights in us, even in our mess. What the cross does is it undoes shame. We don't have to hide. We can turn our eyes to him. Let's pray and ask him to do that in us this morning. Father, would you help us? God, as we think through our shame and our hiding, God, it's just, it's just, it's just hard for us to, to metabolize that a gospel doesn't depend on my performance, but it depends on what Jesus has done for me. And because of that, I have freedom and I'm loved. Help us understand that. Help us begin to have this conversation of shame and how it hijacks our growth with you because it leaves us in isolation and we don't want to be isolated. We want to grow with you. So help us, Father, to understand what this means in and through us. We pray it in your name.